It's Friday. You you know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show, the best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show, episode 238. Kicking it off with the Prince of Darkness. Ozzy Osbourne going to tell you about the crazy train. Stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight on Nonsense, the show, episode 238. We're going to go off the rails a little bit. I mean, it's always a crazy train on Nonsense, the show. You guys know that. I know that. Everybody knows that. That's why we're fucking here. As always, tonight's show is, as of yet, untitled. We're going to talk about some subculture stories. I'm going to tell you guys about the violent, mysterious, uh, uh, maniacal street gangs of the Disneyland Resort. It's exactly as ominous as it sounds. Stay tuned. You're going to dig it. I'm going to tell you about a legendary figure by the name of Bass Reeves, a a, a legend of the Wild West. I'm going to tell you about the Captain's Film Institute entry number 25. That's right. We're finally going to get to Roadhouse. I hope you're pumped about it. I know I sure am because I am crazy for Swayze. Fuck, I love me some Patrick Swayze. I'm going to give you a story in a brand new segment called What the Fuck? About a man by the name of Joseph Michael Palmer. A man who I'm uh, uh, giving the honorific of the persecuted beardsman to. And then I'm going to tell you about the Captain Nick's listener bounty. An opportunity for you, the fans and friends and supporters of Nonsense, the show to win money directly out of my pocket. So if you want pirate money in your pocket, stay tuned. I'm going to tell you how to earn it. Um, Let's let Ozzy fucking finish things out for a minute. Just for a second, because I'm digging it. I like it. Things are about to kick off. It's nonsense. I'm fired up. You're fired up. Let's get fired up and uh, finish out Crazy Train. All right? Two minutes if you don't want to listen. Skip forward. Here we go. Ozzy.
Ozzy. That's about enough of that. I think the people are ready for me to talk, not to hear you sing anymore. Who wants to hear Ozzy Osbourne over Captain Nick? Fucking nobody. Okay, let's settle in for a minute. Let's settle in for just a second. Let's take a breath. <laughs> As I said, this is episode 238 of Nonsense the Show. That's 38 episodes into season two. That's a lot of episodes. That's a lot of hours. And we've picked up a few new listeners in recent days. Uh, I want to give a shout out to any of you who have, uh, who have joined us in the last couple of weeks. Um, I appreciate you giving Nonsense the Show a chance. Um, it is high time that I expand this show outside of my inner circle of people who just dig my weird shit. So I am going to give you guys an opportunity to win $100 out of my pocket. I will either hand you a crisp Benjamin Franklin greenback Hunsky, or I will PayPal it to you. I will uh, send you $100 worth of something you pick. I'll send it. It's all good. You get $100, and I get more listeners, and that's a win for everybody. I'll tell you about that a little bit later on. Before we get deep into this show, though, let me go ahead and just start you off with a brand new segment called What the Fuck? I'm going to tell you the story about a man with a beard. A man with a beard who didn't want to shave. A man with a beard who didn't want to shave, who lived in a time and in a place and around people who wanted him to shave very, 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 very badly. A farmer from no town, a village on the outskirts of Leominster, Massachusetts, Palmer was a veteran of the War of 1812. In 1830, Joseph Palmer was a successful Yankee farmer, but by no means was he a typical one. Possibly influenced in childhood by a bearded itinerant evangelist named Lorenzo Dow, Palmer took to wearing a long beard sometime in the 1820s. Few men in the United States wore beards after about 1820, and Palmer was considered eccentric and slovenly for his choice. He was nicknamed, quote, the old Jew, and was regularly harassed and questioned about his insistence on wearing a beard. Hey, beard guy, what are you doing wearing a beard? That's a nice beard you got. Why don't you tell me why you grow that beard? Nobody wears a beard. That's not what cool people do, so shave that beard, nerd. That's what they said, probably verbatim. I'm not a historian. I don't fucking know. A prominent Fitchburg minister once accosted him. Palmer, why don't you shave and not go around looking like the devil? Very calmly, Palmer replied, Mr. Trask, are you not mistaken in your comparison of personages? I have never seen a picture of the ruler of the sulfurous regions with much of a beard, but... If I remember correctly, Jesus wore a beard not unlike mine. <laughs> so he had, his, he had his quips ready to go. He was not going to let these motherfuckers uh, push him around without uh, pushing back just a little bit. One day in May 1830, four men armed with scissors and razors attacked Palmer outside of a Fitchburg hotel and attempted to shave him. So these guys really, really believed in making this guy have a naked chin. Palmer successfully fended off four armed attackers, and he was even able to use his jackknife to wound the legs of two of his assailants. And in a true example of what the American justice system is all about, he was charged with, quote, unprovoked assault. Palmer was arraigned a few days later before a judge by the name of David Brigham, and he was fined. Palmer refused to pay the $10 fine, which uh, also included nearly $40 in court fees and a $700 bond that resulted from his conviction for the crime of defending himself. He was thrown into the Worcester County Jail and kept there for more than a year for refusing to pay that fine. So over a $10 fine plus the associated fees because he didn't shave a beard and got attacked for it, he had to spend over a year in jail. Chew on that for a minute, huh? Palmer kept a detailed journal of his 15, uh, 15 months in the jail. The original is still preserved in the archive at the Fruitlands Museum. 
His prison diary records, uh, his prison diary records the words and the actions of his often sadistic jailers. The experiences of his fellow prisoners and even his own steadfastness in re- in re- mm. <laughs> sip of rum because I'm <laughs> we are eight minutes and thirty three seconds into this show and I'm already fumbling my words. That's a real good sign. Mm. Tonight I have just finished off a delicious bottle of bamboo rum. Um, I don't know which kind of the bamboo rum this is. I think this is just their basic rum. It's really fucking good, and it puts me in a good party space. So, uh, And even his own steadfastness in resisting the efforts of the state and society to break him of his unconventional habits and opinions. This man was a rebel. He believed differently than others, and he believed strongly enough in those differences that he was willing to sacrifice mightily in order to not sacrifice his, his morals, his ethics. He wasn't going to cross that line. Palmer's term in jail was extremely unpleasant at times. Uh, he was dangerously sick during his few, first few weeks behind bars, and, and later he was beaten several times by the jailers, nearly starved for days at a time, placed in solitary confinement for several months on end, and he was physically threatened by other prisoners who, tr- who still tried to cut off his beard. So the whole situation that got him there was this beard. He, he, he fought back. He defended himself, cut a couple fools. They put him in jail, and motherfuckers still want to cut his beard. They're still torturing him for the fact that he will not go along with the flow. This is a man that would not cave to peer pressure. Teach your children about this man. To Calvin Willard, the sheriff of Worcester County. Uh, ooh, to Calvin Willard, the sheriff. <laughs> he sent to the sheriff a constant stream of letters complaining of the poor conditions in the jail. One time, to prove to the sheriff how little food he was receiving, he sent Willard a package containing every morsel of food the jailers had given him in one day. So over and over, he's sending letters because he's got nothing but time. And he keeps sending these letters to the sheriff. And finally, just to prove his claims, he goes, I'm going to put in this envelope every single bit of food they give me today. And then you can tell me if that's appropriate. Well, surely the sheriff heard that, changed his ways, and made sure that Palmer was treated humanely, right? Right, Captain Nick? That's what you're going to tell us, right? You're going to tell us that everything was fine after he sent those letters and proved his claims? Oh, sweet summer child. For such rebellious acts, his jailkeepers, especially two men by the name of Hosea Bellows and Dorrance Wilder, treated Palmer even worse. On September 22, 1830, after a little more than four months in prison, Palmer exploded in distress and fury at the treatment he and his fellow prisoners were receiving. He was punished for his outburst by spending the next three months in solitary confinement. If you do any studying, any, any, uh, if you have any knowledge of what solitary confinement is, the thought of doing three months in solitary at all is horrifying, torturous, inhuman. The thought of doing three months in solitary for doing nothing more than speaking out against inhumane conditions is it's barbaric. Throughout his imprisonment, Palmer insisted that he was innocent and that to pay a fine, even only $10, would equate to admitting his own guilt. Palmer's case became something of an embarrassment to county authorities who realized that his jail term was far exceeding his, quote, crime. And they sent several committees to the jail to try to convince him to leave. Of course, they weren't just going to let him out. That would be to admit that they were wrong, and they could never do that because the government is never wrong. Everybody knows that. They offered to waive the $700 bond if he would only pay the fine and the court fees. Palmer told one of the committees, if I ain't a safe person to have, mm, if I ain't a safe person to have my liberty, I ought not to go out. And I am willing to stay in confinement till I am. 
I just want to pause and, and really just point out the integrity of this man. This is why I chose this story. This is a man who really believed in his cause. He believed in right and wrong. And he was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that the side of right won out. It was not until Judge David Brigham, the very same judge who had originally fined him, visited the, Wor- the Worcester prison and begged Palmer to relent. Brigham also carried a letter from Palmer's mother, a woman well into her 80s, pleading with him to come home. So now they're pulling out all the stops. They have the judge who sentenced him come in and hand him a letter from his mother who's nearing her deathbed saying, please, 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 just give this up and come home. There's not a lot of moral stances that are going to win out over a mother, and that's it, at least for me. I'm a, I'm a mama's boy. I love my mother. Hi, mom. I love you. On August 31st, 18... Mm, on August 31st, 1831, after more than 15 months in prison, Palmer paid his fine and left the jail. He publicized his case by writing letters from jail that were widely published after first appearing in the Worcester Spy. When he later visited Boston in 1840, crowds on the street mocked him. So he became well-known as a result of, of publicizing his case, but he was not treated well. The abuse continued even after he was let out. But his imprisonment forced Palmer's interest in, reinforced Palmer's interest in political and religious reform. He was involved in prison reform and was an early abolitionist. He died sometime in 1873, by which time beards had become widely fashionable again. He is buried in Evergreen Cemetery in North Leominster, and his grave marker bears a bearded portrait of him with the inscription, Persecuted for Wearing the Beard. I've been a bearded man a long time. It enhances me quite a bit because I have a weak chin. Um... A man like Mr. Palmer, beard or no beard, a man who is able to take such a moral stand, he recognizes what is right, he recognizes what is wrong, he recognizes that just because it's the law doesn't mean it's moral, doesn't mean it's ethical, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. He chose to follow his own heart and his own sense of justice, and he sacrificed mightily for it even after he was let out of jail. Um, somebody like that, who, as small as that protest may have been in the grand scheme of things, as, as trivial as the actual cause may have been, um, I have a lot of respect for that. That's, that's the type of person that I would love to, uh, you know, that I, that I love to, to, to look at and go, okay, if I was put in a similar situation, would I behave the same way? Maybe not, but I, I would like to think I would. I would like to think I have that kind of integrity, that kind of moral turpitude, um, and so on and so forth. Okay, listen. We're going to listen to Queen. Going all the way back to Pirate Radio, this is one of my favorite songs to put on a podcast. So listen to Don't Stop Me Now. Sing along. I'm going to. I'm going to drink some rum. And uh, you guys just soak in the tones of Freddie Mercury. Nonsense 238. Thanks for joining us. Love you. Floating around in ecstasy. So don't stop me now.
Nobody out there like Freddie Mercury. That was a one in a billion situation. God bless Freddie Mercury. Sip a rum for Freddie Mercury, for Queen, for all the incredible music they gifted to us, which we still enjoy and feel the magic of to this day. Mm. And while I'm at it, shout out to Bamboo Rum. Made my beverage for the for this evening. I really fucking enjoy it. And uh, as always, this show is sponsored by the the uh, the fine fellows, the excellent kissers, the big spoons, the uh, the tender lovers, down there in Paso Robles, California, at Paso Wine Shine, specifically one Patrick Brooks, my compadre in the Space Junkie Space Program. Brand new podcast coming your way. Uh, everywhere fine podcasts are sold. Uh, thank you, Pat. Thank you, Paso Wine Shine. If you make it to Paso Robles, go down there and visit them. Uh, They're partnered up with the Tin City Distillery. They're excellent folks. They make great booze. They'll get you drunk. They'll make you feel good. They'll tell you great stories. And Pat has an absolutely incredible voice. Um, Tell them I sent you. They're probably not going to give you anything free, but they'll send me some free shit. And if you like me, you want me to have free shit. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time. It is time. time for another entry into our legendary figures segment tonight i'm gonna tell you about a man known as the real life lone ranger that's right a man by the name of bass reeves which is one hell of a great name i don't care if you're a fucking ranger or a blues singer or a grocery store checkout clerk bass reeves is a hell of a name and i got a quote from mr reeves to start things off just to give you an idea about who this person is and a little bit about why um, I chose to tell you guys about him tonight. Bass Reeves is a legendary figure because of this attitude. Maybe the law ain't perfect, but it's the only one we got. And without it, we got nothing. Born to slave parents in 1838 in Crawford County, Arkansas, Bass Reeves would become the first black U.S. deputy marshal west of the Mississippi River and one of the greatest frontier heroes in our nation's history. Owned by a man named William Reeves, a farmer and a politician, Bass took the surname of his owner like other slaves of the time. His first name came from his grandfather, Bassie Washington. Working alongside his parents, Reeves started out as a water boy until he was old enough to become a field hand. In about 1846, William Reeves moved his operations, family, and slaves to Grayson County, Texas. Bass was a tall young man at about six foot two with good manners and a sense of humor. George Reeves, William's son, later made him his valet, bodyguard, and personal companion. When the Civil War broke out, Texas sided with the Confederacy, and George Reeves went into battle, taking Bass with him. It was during these years of the Civil War that Bass parted company from Reeves, uh, which some say was because Bass beat up George after a dispute in a card game. So this man, who was a slave, entered the Civil War with with his bosses, his master's son, And along the way, he said, man, fuck you in this card game. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. (laughs) And then he went on his own way. Um, Others, though, uh, believe that Bass heard too much about the, quote, freeing of slaves, and he simply ran away. He saw that there was another way to live, and he said, fuck that, I'm out of here. 
In any event, Bass fled to Indian Territory, which is now known as Oklahoma, where he took refuge with the Seminole, Cherokee, and Creek Indians, learning their customs, languages, and tracking skills. So all of a sudden, now he's developing a very, very useful skill set with these, uh, the, these varied and interesting cultures and peoples and tribes. Here, he also honed his firearm skills, becoming very quick and accurate with a pistol. Though Reeves claimed to be, quote, only fair with a rifle, he was barred on a regular basis from competitive turkey shoots, which uh, kind of gives lie to that, to that statement. You don't get banned from turkey shoots if you're only fair with your firearm. Freed by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and no longer a fugitive, Reeves left Indian Territory and bought land near Van Buren, Arkansas, where he became a successful farmer and a rancher. A year later, he married a woman by the name of Nellie Jenny from Texas and immediately began to have a family. Raising ten children on their homestead, five girls and five boys, the family lived very, very happily on their farm. During this time, oral history states that Reeves sometimes served as a scout and a guide for U.S. Deputy Marshals going into Indian Territory on business for the Van Buren Federal Court, which had jurisdiction over Indian Territory. Reeves' life as a contented farmer would change when the Federal Western District Court was moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Judge Isaac C. Parker was appointed on May 10, 1875. If you know anything about Western history in America, if you know anything about the Wild West, the cowboy, the rugged, outlandish, rugged Wild West of the American frontier, you know the name Isaac C. Parker. He was known as the Hanging Judge. At that time, the Indian Territory had become extremely lawless as thieves, murderers, and anyone else wishing to hide from the law took refuge in the territory that previously had no federal or state jurisdiction. One of Judge Parker's first official acts was to appoint U.S. Marshal James F. Fagan as head of some 200 deputies he was then told to hire. So, hey, Mr. Fagan, guess what? You're the U.S. Marshal, and now you got to get 200 deputies and go clean this mess up. While he was filling those ranks, Fagan heard of Bass Reeves' significant knowledge of the area as well as his ability to speak several tribal languages, and he soon recruited him as a U.S. deputy. So despite the fact that in this time being a black man was still a big, uh, a big stain against you, um, it, was, it was a big problem. This is a man who was so useful, had such skills, had such grit, had such guts, had such character, that there was no way Marshal Fagan wasn't going to hire him. These deputies uh, were tasked with, quote, cleaning up the Indian Territory and on Judge Parker's orders, quote, Bring them in alive or dead. Working among other lawmen that would also become legendary, such as Heck Thomas, Bud Ledbetter, and Bill Tillman, Reeves began to ride the Oklahoma Range in search of outlaws. Covering some 75,000 square miles, the United States Court at Fort Smith was the largest in the nation. So this is a big responsibility. It's a difficult job. It's a dangerous job. This is not a job that just everybody is going to be able to do. Depending on the outlaws for whom he was depending on the outlaws for whom he was searching, a deputy would generally take with him from Fort Smith a wagon, a cook, and a Native American posseman. Often they rode to such places as Fort Reno, Fort Sill, and Anadarko, a round trip, a round trip of more than eight hundred miles, which even now today in modern transportation with a car and, and all that is a very very long drive. Um, imagine doing it with a wagon. An imposing figure always riding on a large white stallion, Reeves began to earn a reputation for his courage and success at bringing in or killing many desperados of the territory. Always wearing a large hat, Reeves was an unusually spiffy dresser. 
uh, with his boots polished to a gleaming shine. He was known for his politeness and his courteous manner. However, when the purpose served him, he was a master of disguises and often utilized aliases. Sometimes appearing as a cowboy, a farmer, a gunslinger, or an outlaw, um, he always wore two Colt pistols, but forward for a fast draw. He was ambidextrous, and as a result, when he drew his pistol, he rarely missed his mark. Leaving Fort Smith, often with a pocket full of warrants, Reeves would return months later hurting a number of outlaws charged with crimes ranging from bootlegging to murder. Paid in fees and rewards, he would make a handsome profit before spending a little time with his family and returning to the range once again. The tales of his captures are, of course, legendary, filled with intrigue, imagination, and courage. And, of course, my name is Captain Nick. I'm here to tell you stories. You think I'm not going to tell you a little bit about Bass Reeves' intrigue, imagination, and courage? Bite your tongue, fool. I got you covered. Sip a rum for you, the listeners of Nonsense the Show. Mm, 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 mm. I love me some bamboo. On one such occasion, Reeves was pursuing two outlaws in the Red River Valley near the Texas border. Gathering a posse, Reeves and the other men set up camp some 28 miles from where the two were thought to be hiding at their mother's home. After studying the terrain and making a plan, he soon disguised himself as a tramp, hiding the tools of his trade, handcuffs, pistol, and badge under his clothes. Setting out on foot, he arrived at the house wearing an old pair of shoes, dirty clothes, carrying a cane, and wearing a floppy hat complete with three bullet holes in it. Upon arriving at the home, he told a tale to the woman who answered the door that his feet were aching after having been pursued by a posse who had put the three bullet holes in his hat. After asking for a bite to eat, she invited him in, and while he was eating, she began to tell him of her two young outlaw sons, suggesting that the three of them should join forces. So like any good mother, she answered the door for a stranger who had bullet holes in his hat and said he was running from the law. She invited him inside. She sat him down. She's like, well, hey, good news. My sons are criminals, too. You guys should do crime together. That's a great idea. Sure. <laughs> oh, man. See, the thing is, like, I feel like my mother, if, if, like, somebody was in need, she would invite them in. And if she thought that person and me had something in common and we could help each other, she would make, a, she would make that connection. So as much as I mock it, I can understand how a mother would, 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 you know, would kind of do that. Feigning weariness, she consented to let him stay a little while longer. And as the sun was setting, Reeves heard a sharp whistle coming from beyond the house. Exactly what he was hoping for. Shortly afterward, the woman went outside and responded with an answering whistle. Before long, two riders rode up to the house, talking at length with her outside. The three of them came the, mm, the three of them then came inside and she introduced her sons to Reeves. After discussing their various crimes, the trio mm, the trio agreed that it would be a good idea to join up. So again, like you have a situation where mom vouches for this guy even though she doesn't know shit about him. She's like, "I don't know. He showed up with holes in his hat. He says he's a criminal. You guys are criminals. Why don't you guys do crime?" And the boys show up and they talk to their mom and they're like, "Yeah, all right. Let's go talk to the guy." And they talk to him. They're like, "Hey, tell me about what crimes you committed." Just tell me what you've done. And then they do the same. They're like, yeah, we like crime. Let's do crime. Who doesn't like fucking crime? I don't know. It just feels, it feels baffling that, you know, criminals evading the law would not be more suspicious of this situation. Uh, bunking down in the same room, Reeves watched the pair carefully as they drifted off to sleep. And when they were snoring deeply, he handcuffed them without waking them. 
percolate on that for a minute. Jesus, I dropped my pen because I was percolating too hard. When early morning approached, he kicked the boys awake and marched them out the door, followed the first three miles by their mother, who cursed Reeves the entire time. He marched the pair the full 28 miles to the camp where the posse men waited. Within days, the outlaws were delivered to the authorities and Bass collected a $5,000 reward, which was a shitload of money in that time. So this dude basically just walked into their house. He conned their mother. He conned them. He waited until they went to the sleep. went to sleep. He used his fucking ninja skills. He handcuffed them, and they didn't wake up. So then he goes, all right, well, I'll just hang out and wait till they wake up. And then come morning, they woke up, and he's like, all right, motherfuckers, let's go. It's just wild. I mean, the balls on this dude. No wonder he's a legend. One of the high points of Reeves' career was apprehending a notorious outlaw by the name of Bob Dozier. Dozier was known as a jack-of-all-trades when it came to committing crimes. As they covered a wide range from cattle and horse wrestling to holding up banks, stores, and stagecoaches, and he even made it into murder and then even worse than murder, land swindling. Because Dozier was unpredictable, he was also hard to catch, and though many lawmen had tried to apprehend him, none were successful. Until it came to Reeves. Dozier eluded Reeves for several months until the lawman tracked him down in the Cherokee Nation. After refusing to surrender, Reeves killed Dozier in an accompanying gunfight on December 20th, 1878. In 1887, Reeves was charged with murdering a posse cook. So he goes from being like the king of the lawman to all of a sudden he's like, you shot your fucking posse cook, what's up? Like the many outlaws he had arrested, he was tried before Judge Isaac C. Parker. He was represented by United States Attorney W.H.H. H. Clayton, who was a colleague and a friend. And thankfully, in the end, he was acquitted. In 1889, back on the trail after Reeves was assigned to Paris, Texas, he went after the Tom Story gang, a a group of known horse thieves. He waited along the route that the gang was known to have used and surprised Tom Story with an arrest warrant. In that moment, the outlaw panicked and he drew his gun, but Reeves drew faster and he shot him dead. At that moment, the rest of the gang disbanded, and they were never heard from again. So again, like the man's character, the man's skill, the man's deadly, deadly accuracy were so powerful that he killed one man and disbanded an entire gang. Oh shit, fuck that, we're going out, we're going to go back to being farmers and shit. In 1890, Reeves arrested a notorious Seminole outlaw named Greenleaf, who had murdered seven people and been on the run for 18 years. The same year, he went after the famous Cherokee outlaw named Ned Christie, who you may have heard of. Reeves and his posse buried Christie's, burned Christie's cabin, but he eluded capture. Unfortunately, in 1896, Reeves' wife's, Reeves, mm, words are hard. <laughs> You know, sometimes you get in the groove and you start reading a fun story. You're having a good time. You got a little buzz going. And, uh, you know, you get ahead of yourself. <laughs> Thank God you guys are here for my professionalism. Uh, in 1896, unfortunately, Reeves' wife died in Fort Smith. And the next year, he was transferred to the Muscogee Federal Court in Indian Territory. In 1900, he was married a second time to a woman by the name of Winnie Sumter. 
So he found love again. Didn't only took him a couple years. That's beautiful. That, mm, God damn, fucking words are hard. That's beautiful. It's lovely. Okay. Uh, no word on what happened to his kids, though. That's kind of bizarre. Though the tales of Reeves' heroics are many and varied, the toughest manhunt for the lawmen. Oh, wait. Here come. Here come stories about his children. Though the tales of Reeves' heroics are many and varied, the toughest manhunt for the lawman was that of hunting down his own son in 1902. After having delivered two prisoners to U.S. Marshal Leo Bennett in Muskogee, Oklahoma, he arrived to bad news. His own son, Benny, had been charged with murder after having killed his wife in a fit of jealousy. Though the warrant had been lying on Bennett's desk for two days, the other deputies were reluctant to take it, and though Reeves was shaken, he demanded to accept the responsibility for finding his son. Two weeks later, Reeves returned to Muskogee with his son in tow and turned him over to Marshal Bennett. His son was tried, convicted to life in prison, and sent to Kansas Leavenworth Penitentiary, which is still known today as one of the worst prisons in the federal system. Um... Just think about that for a minute. You're a legendary lawman. You've been through all this bullshit in your life. You've fought the worst of the worst. you just come back from arresting two notorious outlaws. And your boss tells you, hey, I've got some bad news and I'm not really sure how to say it. And then he hands you a piece of paper, a warrant, one you've seen many times before. You've dealt with hundreds of these. But you've never dealt with one that has your son's name on it. And you find out what he did. It's no small crime. He murdered his wife. Your partners, your coworkers, your fellow deputy marshals are refusing to take the job because they don't want to piss you off because they know who you are. And so going back to that quote at the beginning of the story, the law ain't perfect, but it's all we've got. And without it, we got nothing. He makes the integrity, character, right choice decision he says okay i'll take the job i will find my son and i will bring him back to face justice because i believe in what we're doing i believe in our courts i believe in this system i believe this is the right thing to do very much like mr palmer in our previous story this is a man with integrity character and morals he's got conviction when he believes something is right he's going to stand by it until the end of time and if you know anything about me you know that's something that i will always always uh, put on a pedestal later with a citizen's petition mm, petition and an exemplary prison record bonnie reeves benny reeves i don't know why it says bonnie was pardoned and lived the rest of his life as a model citizen So it was clearly a one-time situation, as horrible, awful, tragic as it was. This was not a criminal. This was a man who murdered somebody. He served his time. You, you can't call him a good person. You can't forgive him for what he did. But you can look at that and go, okay, well, it was whatever the situation was, it was isolated. He was not an unhinged maniac. So they let him out. I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's not my job. I'm not a judge anymore. Um, a quote from the Oklahoma City Weekly Times Journal. That was hard to say. Reeves was never known to show the slightest excitement under any circumstance. He does not know what fear is. In 1907, law enforcement was assumed by state agencies and Reeves' duties as a deputy marshal came to an end. Next, Bass took a job as a patrolman with the Muskogee, Oklahoma Police Department. During the two years he served in this capacity, there were reportedly no crimes. On his beat. 
two full years working in the same area and no crimes were reported? I don't know what conclusion to come to. I'm going to let you figure that out on your own. Reeves' diagnosis with Bright's disease finally ended his career when he took to his sickbed in 1909. He died on January 12, 1910 and was buried in the Union Agency Cemetery at Muskogee, Oklahoma. But the exact location of his grave is unknown. So now you add a little mystery to the story. That's always good. The lengthy and glowing obituary for, uh, for this universally respected man described him as, quote, absolutely fearless and knowing no master but duty. Over 35 years that Bass Reeves served as a deputy United States Marshal, he earned his place in history by being one of the most effective lawmen in the Indian Territory, bringing in more than 3,000 outlaws and helping to tame the lawless territory, killing some 14 men during his service. So he brought in 3,000 and only killed 14. He did something right. Reeves always said that he, quote, never shot a man when it was not necessary for him to do so in the discharge of his duty or to save his own life. Many argue, including Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Lies 2015 television series, that there is evidence that Bass Reeves was the basis of the now classic radio and later television series, The Lone Ranger. Hi-ho, Silver! Away! with several key similarities between the character and the real legend. However, that claim is debated by others who tend to believe... Oh, correction. That claim is debated by others. We tend to believe he really was the Lone Ranger. 80 miles west of Fort Smith was known as, quote, the deadline. And whenever a deputy marshal from Fort Smith or Paris, Texas, crossed the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas track, he took his own life in his hands, and he knew it. On nearly every trail would be found posted by outlaws a small card warning certain deputies that if they ever crossed the deadline, they would be killed. Reeves has a dozen of these cards which were posted for his special benefit. And in those days, such a notice was no idle boast. And many an outlaw has bitten the dust trying to ambush a deputy on these trails. I mean, that's one hell of a fucking impressive man, wouldn't you say? (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are just right now approaching 40 minutes into this episode of Nonsense, the show Nonsense 238. That's almost 40 hours worth of entertainment for you, the fans of Nonsense, the show since November of 2020. I'm doing a good deed for you. Hey, if you enjoy Nonsense, the show, do me a favor. Uh, go on to iTunes, write me a review, leave me five stars, tell people what you like about the show. Um, if you really like what I'm doing, if you find any value in the show that I'm putting out, if you're entertained, if you enjoy it, if you get a laugh out of it, if it makes your day a little bit better and it's worth anything to you, jump onto patreon.com backslash nonsense the show, throw me a couple of bucks. Uh, Let me know you enjoy the show with your monetary donations. I'm trying to make a career out of this. I'm damn good at what I do, and I would really like to uh, to do it better. So if you contribute money, I can fucking upgrade my equipment. I can upgrade my services, and I can make sure I give you the best of nonsensical entertainment every single week. And now, because I'm getting a little too big for my britches, I need to remember that I'm only pretty fly for a white guy. Take it away, Offspring. See you guys in a couple minutes for the rest of Nonsense the Show, episode 238. And all the girlies say I'm pretty fly for a white guy. Uno, 
gentlemen <laughs> sometimes you just need to reset your ego a little bit and just remind yourself that for uh, as cool as you feel for as good as life is uh sometimes <laughs> you just need to know uh that you're just still a fucking geeky old white dude <laughs> um all right let's see so right now i'm gonna go ahead and set something up for you Bada bing, bada boom. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time on this episode of Nonsense to Show 44 minutes, 37 seconds in. Um, I'm drunk. I'm a little stoned. I'm feeling good. I'm a happy camper. Life is good. Um, all right, let me take a minute. I had I had several of you write to me when I put up a post about what do you want to hear on Nonsense to Show. And several of you wanted to hear a little bit more about the beautiful lady who has stolen my heart. So I'm going to go ahead and get a little mushy. If you don't like mushiness, skip ahead a little bit. Just skip ahead 15 or 30 seconds at a time until I'm not talking mushy. All right? And then as soon as we get through the mushiness, we're going to get to Roadhouse. So it's all good. <laughs> 
Um, all right, mushy time. You guys ready for this? You guys ready for me to get real with you? This is nonsense, the show. This is usually a place that I get silly. I get fucking nonsensical. I get a little bit profane. I let the captain come out just a little bit more than I do uh, in the current life uh, that I'm living. Um, I've been hesitant to go into detail on this show about Maggie for the simple fact that I didn't have her permission. What we're doing is for us. It's not for you guys. But you guys have also been with me for a very long time, most of you. You have seen me through some dark days, and I feel like if you have seen me through the dark days, you deserve to at least understand what's going on during the good days. So I had a very quick discussion with Maggie today to to get her permission to speak about her on the show. Um, I, okay, hang on. I'm balancing how much to tell you guys right now because this is such a good situation, and I'm very, very, very excited about it. And it's, uh, it's just, it's enhancing my life in a lot of ways. Um, all right, here's what I'm going to say. I am currently dating and uh, have very, very strong feelings. <laughs> uh, I have strong feelings of emotional concern for uh, this beautiful woman, this incredible woman, this intelligent woman, this dynamic, direct, um, you know, kind of fascinating woman called Maggie. Um, she is somebody who we just vibe on a lot of the appropriate levels, our values, our morals, our desires, our thoughts, our interests all align, our decorating taste aligns. And those of you that have been inside my home or seen inside my home recognize that I don't exactly decorate my home like a normal person. Um, I decorate my home like a museum of me. It's a place that uh, my, my, well, my dear homie, one of my best friends in the entire world for the history of life, Matthew Danger Shoop. Um, shout out Danger Shoop. Sip of rum for the boat guys, motherfucker. Mm. I fucking love you, buddy. Can't wait to see you again. I'm going to tell you some good news in the next couple of days. Um, when Matt brought his girlfriend over to my house for the first time, she walked in and she was kind of stunned by it. And he said, yeah, it's like stepping inside of his head, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was one of the better descriptions of what this what this place is because uh, especially the room I'm sitting in my studio nonsense sound studios um this is a place that I I want to be happy everywhere I look I see happy memories I see inspiring things I see things that make me feel good and make me feel like Captain Nick um when I first walked into Maggie's home I described it to my brother as it's my house, but it's hers. She has her her home decorated in a very similar way. It's a lot of fascinating, unique um, thrift store finds, inheritances, family pieces, pieces with great deep emotional meaning to her. Everywhere you look is beautiful artwork and interesting artifacts and things that I want to ask questions about and things that I want to know the story to. And if you are ever fortunate enough to walk into my inner sanctum, my home, I want you to look around. I want you to poke through the shit that is on display. I want you to ask me questions. I want you to tell me what things interest you the most. I love it when I can bring somebody into my space and let them see who I am on a very pure physical level. And I tell you all of that to, to, to not only toot my own horn for being an incredible interior decorator, but also to talk to you about, um, about Maggie in a way that I think is appropriate in that... She is somebody that right now is enhancing all of the things about my life that I've been working so hard on. She's enhancing the things that I desire. She's giving me a a fresh new outlook. She challenges me. She fascinates me. 
Uh, she makes me laugh like nobody else. So life is good. I'm going to quit being bushy now because I realize I just got lost in my reminiscences. And, you know, God knows what the hell I just said. I don't remember it Also, If I embarrassed you, Maggie, I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, I'll make it up to you. Um, <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to salvage this show after I got embarrassingly personal. Uh, Jeff Healy Band, why don't you take it away? This segment is dedicated to Chach. <laughs> big love, big respect. Love you, buddy. It's now time for the Captain's Film Institute. Entry number 25. This is the 1989 Rowdy Harrington-directed classic starring Patrick Swayze, Kelly Lynch, Sam Elliott. This is Roadhouse. Serene and laconic yet powerful and lethal, Dalton is an, ex- is an expert in martial arts and the best professional bouncer in the business. With such a reputation, Dalton is summoned to a small town in Missouri to clean up the sleazy bar called the Double Deuce from the troublemakers who terrorize the customers. Without knowing, however, that the villainous local entrepreneur known as Brad Wesley wants things to remain unchanged. As Dalton cleans up the nightclub and with it the town from Wesley's hired goons, a deep wound from a knife will inspire a passionate love affair with a local, uh, with a local doctor, Elizabeth Doc Clay. Now the corrupt Wesley has enough reasons to take Dalton out of the way. Nevertheless, the bouncer has the final say. <laughs> so, uh, full transparency, Roadhouse is one of my favorite movies of all time. If I've seen it once, I've seen it 250 times. I love this film. I love Patrick Swayze. I love everything about him. I love that he can be beautiful, emotional, sensual, graceful, but he can also be rugged, tough, cheesy, handsome, dreamy, sexual, whatever. Um, I, I uh, I just adore Patrick Swayze. I adore all the work he has done. And Roadhouse, well, Roadhouse is right up there with Tu Wong Fu and Point Break as my favorite Patrick Swayze films. Uh, come to think of it, I've never seen Ghost. I might need to fix that. Um... Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I said this was the Jeff Healy band. This is not. This is Cruzados. It's a song called Don't Throw Stones. And if you know Cruzados, you've also seen From Dust Till Dawn because the band inside the Titty Twister is led by the front man of the Cruzados. Shut the fuck up now. We got work to do. <laughs> this is a very strange show. I hope y'all are having a good time. I know I'm not going to remember it from the minute I finish it, so I'm going to have to go on a walk and listen to it as I upload it. Um, while I was doing research about this film, I've watched it about three times in the last week, and I have not had time to watch TV in the last week, so that tells you something. Um, I pulled a couple of the marketing taglines for this film, and I thought it would be fun to share them with you and see which ones you like the best. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen to these taglines, and I want you to get to me on Instagram, get to me on the text machine, get to me on the uh, on the old email at beardandbones.gmail.com, B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S, at gmail.com, and I want you to tell me which one of these taglines you like the best and which one of these taglines you think fits this movie properly. Tagline number one. 
uh, referencing Patrick Swayze's, uh, at the time, very recent, huge success with Jennifer Grey called Dirty Dancing, uh, another future, future Captain's Film Institute entry. Uh, the tagline is, the dancing is done. Now it gets dirty. That one's kind of aggressive. Number two. Hang on, I got a burp. There we go, that's better. Number two, Dalton lives like a loner, fights like a professional, and loves like there's no tomorrow. That one's pretty good. Very cheesy, but it fits the movie. And number three, last but not least, unless you decide it's least, I hope you tell me, beardandbones.gmail.com. Email me, please. Uh, I need feedback on the show. Dalton is the best bouncer in the business. His nights are filled with fast action, hot music, and beautiful women. It's a dirty job. But someone's got to do it. <laughs> All right. Let me uh, set a little atmosphere here just to finish out this part of the show. This is the Jeff Healy Band. I'm going to keep them on in the background. Four minutes, 21 seconds. Let's finish the Captain's Film Institute before the song is over. Um, my favorite line in this movie is very simple. It's repeated several times. It's kind of just a cheesy tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. But uh, I really like it. Several times, everybody who's important in this movie looks at Dalton and says, I thought you'd be bigger. My favorite scene in the movie is uh, what I call the be nice scene. I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. I'm actually scrolling through right now to try to find it. Mm, Here it is. Nope, that's not it. Whatever, we'll fucking find it. Don't worry about it. Uh, my favorite scene is the be nice scene where Patrick Swayze as Dalton is talking to the staff at the Double Deuce and giving them his rules for the road. Um, and then as always with the Captain's Film Institute, I also pick a favorite character. My favorite character in this film, um, it's got to be Sam Elliott as Wade Garrett. He's just cool as shit. He fucking has a nice little dance, nice little flirt session with the doc. And he's, I mean, just everything he does is the epitome of cool. If in 30 years people look at me and they say, man, you're a little bit like Wade Garrett, I'll say, shit, yeah, I fucking lived right. Uh, The music in this movie is incredible. It captures the time period. It captures the kind of honky-tonk, dangerous, fucking chicken wire to protect the band vibe. Uh, The Jeff Healy band, fronted up by the blind man, the blind guitar player himself, Jeff Healy. Absolutely incredible. They handle most of the bar tunes, and they kill it throughout the movie. Um... One of my favorite moments in the film is right at the beginning when you kind of establish who Dalton is as a bouncer, as a cooler, which is just a more advanced, more superior version of bouncering. Um, he has a couple guys causing trouble inside of his club, and he walks them outside. He says, yeah, all right, let's go outside to fight. That's fine. Let's go. As soon as he gets them outside, he turns around, he walks back in, he lets his boys keep him away. He solves the problem just like that. I don't need to fight you to fucking win. That's something I support because I don't like getting punched and I don't like punching people. I like talking my way out of trouble, being creative. I respect that. Um, <laughs> mad respect. I wish I could get a job like Dalton's. $5,000 up front, $500 a night cash, and I make my own fucking rules. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. That's the way this goes, and when I'm done, I walk. That's Dalton's rules. That's Dalton's fucking numbers. If you don't like it, that's okay. Um, This is one of the cheesiest action movies of all time. Uh, It's not shameful about that. It's one of the reasons it's so perfect. And as such, there is a very, very classic tough guy line in this movie. Patrick Swayze, while he's getting stitched up by the dock, uh, he says, I don't fly. Too dangerous. 
He just got cut with a fucking knife. He's a cooler in the most dangerous bars in the country, but he doesn't fly. Fuck out of here. My favorite cameo in the film, uh, I'm a professional wrestling fan. Uh, I love pro wrestling. I love pro wrestlers. One of the most legendary pro wrestlers of all time. I believe he wrestled matches in at least six different decades across the country, across the world. The deathmatch legend himself, Terry motherfucking Funk. The man is currently going through some uh, end-of-life care. It is a uh, very sad day for professional wrestling. But uh, this is a man that fucking, he left it all in the ring. He lived for that business. If you're a fan of that business, you're a fan of Terry Funk, sip a rum for Terry motherfucking Funk. He's got a cameo. He's fantastic. You'll love it. Uh, There's a phenomenal sex scene between Katie Lynch. uh, Not Katie Lynch. That's ridiculous. Her name is Kelly Lynch and Patrick Swayze. According to her, Kelly Lynch, whenever Bill Murray sees her sex scene with Patrick Swayze on television, he calls her husband, Mitch Glazer, to tease him about it. So just imagine that. Every time that movie comes on TV, which is very, very, very often, uh, her husband gets a phone call. Um, All right, well, we... We outlasted the song, but that's all right. <laughs> um, I am crazy for Swayze. I love Patrick Swayze. I love everything he does. Point Break is a personal Hall of Famer for me. Uh, obviously, Dirty Dancing. Obviously, Red Dawn. Obviously, on and on and on. He did a million fucking great films. He's a, he's, he's a legendary actor. His fame at the time of the filming of this movie caused big problems. A pickup truck containing a group of middle-aged blonde women attempting to drive right up to the star's trailer to meet the actor. Um, so basically a bunch of women were just like, we're going to crash this set. We're going to find him where he is and we're going to go try to get to him. During the big climactic fight by the river, a raft of Swayze loving ladies sailed on by. <laughs> so he's in a scene against his, his mortal enemy in the film, a guy you're going to hear about in a minute, uh, played by a man called Marshall Arteague. He's fighting Jimmy by the Creek. He's getting ready to do this whole thing. He ends up scaring away his lady. It's a whole fucking awful moment. And while they're filming it, trying to be in this moment, trying to close out the film in in big fashion, a group of ladies are like, hey, Patrick, we got this raft just to see you. And then they're just trying to get up and like check out his pecs and shit. It's perverse. A female extra even was playing waitress in one of the scenes, and she was too busy staring at Swayze to watch where she was going. And as a result, she tripped and spilled all of her drinks on another extra. Oh, man. Um, All right. So, yeah. So, basically, Patrick Swayze being Patrick Swayze caused a lot of problems in this particular uh, filming. Um, One of the themes of the Captain's Film Institute, so far it's really the only theme of the Captain's Film Institute, is improvisation. This was a movie I did not expect to find improvisation in. But sure enough. Marshall Arteague, the man who played Jimmy, who was uh, 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 Mr. Wesley's henchman, um, they initially did not get along, uh, he and Swayze. But while filming their big fight, both men quickly realized that they shared a dedication to realistic stunts, which improved that relationship. So essentially, they realized that, like, hey, we both believe in doing this, this stuff as close to real as possible, and so we can kind of vibe on that level. Um, they developed so much mutual trust that they ended up improvising quite a lot of their fight scenes. And they allowed each other to throw real punches and real kicks in the process. When Jimmy swings a log at Dalton, Teague mistakenly thought it was a breakable prop log, but it was not. 
By the end of the fight scene, Swayze was covered in bruises and had two broken ribs and a busted knee, uh, which ended up affecting him for several films thereafter. So basically, they started out as, as, as enemies. They didn't really like each other all that much. And by the time they realized, like, hey, we both kind of really like fighting, like, let's just do this for real, they were able to become, become buddies and build a lot of trust in, in order to do that kind of scene, you know, that real. Um, and on the topic of Mr. Teague, um, he told a story that when he took his mother to the to the premiere of the movie, um, in that big climactic river fight scene that the uh, the, the fans crashed, um, he ends up grabbing Dalton and he says to him, "I used to fuck guys like you in prison." At that moment, during the premiere of the film, um, Mr. Teague's mother jumped up and proudly shouted, "That's my boy!" <laughs> You know, a mother's love. Um, I don't know about this cameo, but I am almost positive that during the junkyard scene where Dalton is stuffing tires into his brand new junker car, um, he salutes the junkyard operator, and you just get just a few seconds worth of this grizzled old dirty dude smoking a cigar. Um, I'm almost positive that dude is Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future. Almost positive. I don't know for sure. I didn't look it up. I just want to say it. Um, in this movie, Dalton rents a room. Uh, it's a loft inside of a barn from a, a cool old farmer called Emmett. Um, I'm a big fan of the barn loft studio. The layout's great. There's big-ass windows that open up. You can get lots of fresh air, lots of good natural light. It's very simple. It doesn't have any frills. There's no extras. And the landlord, Emmett, he seems like a pretty fun character. Like That's a guy I would love to rent a room from, especially at the price of $100 a month. Um, the classic line that I'm sure I'm going to use at some point in my life is uh, Emmett responding to uh, to Dalton calling him sir. He says, calling me sir is like putting an elevator in an outhouse. It just don't fit. <laughs> oh, shit. That's good. Um, here we go. The speech. My favorite scene in the film is when Patrick Swayze as Dalton gives his rules. He has three rules for working as a bouncer. He says, I'm the cooler, you're the bouncers. you got a problem, you come to me. Otherwise, here's the rules you live by. They're three, they're simple, here they are. Number one, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Fair enough. Number two, take it outside. Never start anything in the bar if, you can, if it can be helped. Okay, again, fair enough. And number three, the one that they have the most trouble with but eventually serves them well, be nice. It's just a job. It's not personal. No matter what happens, just be nice. This is a philosophy that I enjoy because as a police officer, this is what I was trained to do. When I was a sheriff's deputy, I was trained by the people that were my mentors, the people who influenced me, who are people that I still to this day have a great deal of respect for. They taught me to be nice. Always be nice right up until it is time to not be nice. And when it's time to not be nice, don't be nice. But Dalton always believes in being nice, and I fucking love that. So um, Patrick Swayze actually wrote one song for the film called Cliff's Edge, and he sang two for the movie's soundtrack. He sang Cliff's Edge, and he sang a song called Raising Heaven in Hell Tonight. Um, many of the characters' names in this film are taken from infamous or famous Wild West personalities. Wade Garrett shares his surname with Pat Garrett, the sheriff who shot and killed Billy the Kid. Brad Wesley, the main villain in the film, has the same last name as the middle name of John Wesley Harden, another famous outlaw. He was one of the most notorious and cold-blooded killers in the history of the West. Um, he was a man who once fired through the wall 
of a hotel into the next room because the person he was sleeping next to uh, was snoring just a little bit too loud. He fucking killed a man. Kelly Lynch's character was nicknamed Doc, which, of course, if you've ever seen Tombstone, is a reference to Doc Holliday. Uh, <clears throat> the character who owns the barn where Dalton rents a room, Emmett, is the first name of Emmett Dalton, leader of the, the notorious bandit ring, the Dalton Gang. The Double Deuce bar owner, Tillman, is named after lawman Bill Tillman of Dodge City and Oklahoma fame. And finally, there's a character named Younger, which, of course, is the last name of Cole Younger, yet another notorious Western bandit and killer. Um, so it's just kind of neat. Like, I remember watching this movie for years and years and years on end, and, I, and until I did the research for this, I never really put that connection together. I knew, like, oh, wait, Garrett, Pat Garrett, okay, I get that. Brad Wesley, John Wesley Harden, sure, maybe, but why would you put those two together? Um, Doc is obvious, but, yeah, so it's just kind of cool. Like, I love that shit. That's always little tributes and themes and things like that are always very interesting to me. Um, Patrick Swayze shows his ass in this film. It's a beautiful ass. I'm a straight man, but it's a beautiful ass. I fucking love Patrick Swayze. He also makes a beautiful woman. He dressing in drag in uh, Tu Wong Fu with regards from Julie Newmar. Highly recommended. It'll be on the fucking list eventually. Um, the character by the name of Carrie Ann brings Dalton breakfast uh, at one point in his loft, and she damn near falls out when he climbs out of bed in the buck. She gets a good look at Patrick Swayze's butt, as we all do. And, uh, of course, in true Carrie Ann fashion, she immediately plops down on the couch, hands him his breakfast, and she just gets immediately familiar. Like, she's overly familiar with this dude, telling him that he's a dead man and shit. And I was always kind of weirded out by her character because she seems really nice and she seems kind of cool, like somebody I would be friends with. But she's so familiar with him and they never really established that in the film. As it turns out, the director's cut or the original cut of the film was like three hours and 30 minutes long. It's a two hour movie, so they cut a lot out of it. A lot of the scenes that were cut were Carrie Ann scenes, kind of building out her character and fleshing that out. So that's why um, she kind of seems kind of awkward in this movie. So um, a perfect display of how untouchable Brad Wesley is in that town is during the life could be a dream segment. He's driving down the road in his convertible. He's swerving across all lanes of traffic. Patrick Swayze, uh, as Dalton, is passing him in his Buick and ends up getting run off the road. And Brad Wesley doesn't even look. He doesn't register it. He doesn't give a shit because he knows he's untouchable. And, of course, as I know you're wondering, yes, the monster truck that you see in this film is, in fact, the seventh iteration of the legendary Bigfoot monster truck. Can you believe it? <laughs> All right, we are one hour, seven minutes, and 44 seconds into this show. This is going to be a very long show because I still have one segment to do, and we got to get at least one song in. Thank you all for joining me. I appreciate you staying with me here on episode 238 of Nonsense, the show. Right now, it's time. Excuse me. Excuse me again. One more for good luck. Thank you. Nope, that's one extra. Thank you. Bless me. Oh, God. I should have muted. I apologize. I don't know where that came from. Jesus. Um, <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for this week's edition of the Schmoop Song. Uh, the Schmoop Song is a secret segment you don't need to know anything about. You just need to know it's important to me. This is Usher, Little John, and Ludacris. Uh, they're going to sing you a song called Yeah. We're not going to get all the way through it, but uh, just in case we do, it's three minutes and 53 seconds. 
feeling low key. She know how it feels. I said, Shorty, she was checking up for me. From the game, she was sitting in my ear. You would think that she knew me. Decided to cheat. Conversation got heavy. She had me feeling like she's ready to blow. All right, boys, let's finish this motherfucking show out, all right? It's one hour, 11 minutes, 37 seconds in. It's a very long show tonight, and I still have to tell you about some fucking very unmarried gangs of Instagram. Nope, shit. Forgive me, I'm feeling the rum. I've been drinking a little heavy since this show started. It's been a long show. Don't fucking worry about it. The Very Merry Ungangs of Disney. <laughs> all right, I wrote 13 pages on this. I'm not going to read all of them to you because you don't need to fucking hear that shit. What you need to know is that sometime around 2013, uh, a specific type of fan started showing up at the Disneyland theme parks. These were not your typical Disney fan, the families, the ears, the Mickey Mouse sweatshirts. These were tattooed, brightly colored hair, crazy jewelry, denim or leather vest, punk rock Disney fans. These were people that did not fit in with the family-friendly aesthetic of the park and eventually felt themselves being a little bit ostracized. As a result, they decided to embrace that, that outsider status, that misfit status, and they created their own little club. 
The current wave of Disney social clubs, though, isn't the first time youth groups have swarmed Disneyland and made others uncomfortable. In the late 1960s, Disneyland dealt with hippies and anarchists, most infamously in the 1970 Yippie Invasion of Disneyland, which you should research. Or if you don't want to research, let me know and I'll do it for you and tell you about it here on the show. Uh, It saw hundreds of long hairs conquer Tom Sawyer Island, block major thoroughfares, and get into fights with security and police. They even forced an early, unexpected closure of the Disneyland theme park. One of only two times in history that Disneyland has officially closed early for a non-private event. The only other time it happened was 9-11. The park dealt with some legitimate gang issues in the 1970s and the early 1980s, but by the late 1990s came an influx of teenagers drawn by more youth-centric attractions and a dramatic drop in the cost of an annual pass. Disneyland became popular with a group called the Gothics who formed what might be the first proto-social club, the Disneyland Arcane Crew. Um, all right, let me see. So I read a bunch of shit. So let me, let me just tell you guys how this motherfucker goes, because this show has gone long, and to be honest, I'm tired and I have shit to do. Um, what happened was a group of people that did not feel like they totally fit the aesthetic of Disneyland. They loved Disney. They were, they were nearly obsessed with Disney. But they didn't feel like they fit. They didn't feel belong. They felt a little bit ostracized. So what they did around the time of Sons of Anarchy and kind of inspired by that was they created a group called the Neverlanders. At first, it was just a handful of people, a married couple and their friends and a few people they met along the way in Disney uh, Instagram chats and, and message boards and things like that. Eventually, the group grew and they, they started having problems with people saying they were a part of the group and behaving poorly in the parks, thus giving them all a bad name. They had created denim vests uh, modeled after motorcycle clubs. They had custom patches. They had Disney trading pins on the vest. They had nicknames, favorite characters, all kinds of things that kind of made an intricate statement about their fandom of this particular brand, theme park, and, and you know, entertainment. As a result of the people that were claiming to be a part of the group but were causing trouble, they had to uh, enact a very strict membership policy. So initially all you had to do was meet up with these people, kind of show that you had the same fandom, and then they would let you be a part of the club after you posted a picture on Instagram with them or something. Well, after several months, maybe even a year or two, um, and, and several dozen new members, they finally said, like, hey, everybody, nobody's a member until you retag us in your Instagram picture. Then you and I are going to talk and we're going to make sure you're who we want as a part of our club representing us in the Disneyland park. That is so important to us. But as with anything like this, people start seeing this and they go, what the fuck are these people doing? And eventually they realize, well, this is kind of neat. Like this is a group of people who have a very deep passion about something who have created a club about it. Why wouldn't you do that? There's nothing wrong with that. And so other clubs started forming. The Main Street Elite. Hang on. I've, got, I've got more club names. Let me give you these because these are really fucking fun. Uh, the Main Street Elite. The White Rabbit Social Club. The Big Bad Wolves. The Jungle Cruisers. The Tomorrowland Rebels. The Tomorrowland Ravagers. The Fountains of Color. The Space Rangers. Mickey's Pink Ladies. The Franz, mm, San Francisco Stormtroopers. Order 66. The Hitchhikers. The Sons of Anakin. The Boomerang. Mm, the Bangerang Babes. The Tigger Army. The Neverland Mermaids. And Flynn's Riders are just a few of the somewhere between 50 and 527 social clubs known to exist within the Disneyland parks. These range from two to four people, a small family, all the way up to over 100 members. 
as with anything like this, when you get many groups of people that start identifying within an in-group, they start claiming territory. We're the Tomorrowland Raiders. Oh, yeah, we're the Tomorrowland Ravagers. And all of a sudden, you've got a feud over territory. I was talking with Maggie earlier about this and how interesting it is to see that no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what kind of culture you come from, no matter what kind of background you come from, education, profession, economic, it doesn't matter, religious, when you get two groups of people who claim the same territory, the same basic events tend to, tend to, 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 to come to, to fruition. You tend to see people... Um, having these feuds, trying to undermine each other, eventually fighting each other. Um, there's pride in the in-group. There's an us-versus-them mentality that builds up. And it's this universal human trait that we all recognize as bad, but we all still participate in. It's very interesting. And, of course, Disneyland is not immune to this, no matter how much they would like to be seen as a fantasy land where reality doesn't fucking exist. Um. <clears throat> So what ended up happening was a couple of these clubs, a very small number, but a very prominent number, ended up having feuds that erupted into real-world consequences. Now, again, the majority of these clubs are just regular people who happen to be Disney nerds. They love Disney. They love everything about it. They want to identify. They want to belong to something. So they created something to belong to. There's nothing wrong with that. Everything's fucking good. Where the problem comes is where you decide to have a feud with another group and you bring police into it. You bring accusations of violence. You bring accusations of theft. You bring all these accusations of unsavory dealings that tend to tarnish people's reputations and cause them to receive death threats. Threats against their job, their home, their family, their friends. Somehow social clubs which were meant to enhance the experience at the happiest place on earth led to police involvement, extortion, protection rackets, gambling, theft, embezzlement, slander, libel, and all of the sins that you can imagine within the human psyche. Um, it's a really incredible thing. I know Vice has done a couple of articles about it. It seems like it's died down a little bit with the pandemic, the park being closed, all that kind of thing. Who knows if it'll restart? I certainly know of a few people who have participated in things like this as, as you know, the, the vast majority, which is fun-loving Disney nerds who just like to embrace that fandom and have a lot of fun with it. The motorcycle club aesthetic is a cool aesthetic. I created the Knucklehead Crew. I got a fucking jacket. I mean, it ain't. It, it's not a bad thing as long as you don't do bad things with it. Fascinating story, though. I highly recommend you check out the gangs of Disneyland. Um, and now, before we uh, start nearing our way towards the end of this phenomenal episode of Nonsense the Show, I want to let you guys know about the Captain's Bounty. If you've listened this far into the episode, you are a true fan of Nonsense the Show, and I'm grateful for you. Thank you for being here with me week to week, month to month, episode to episode. It is time, though, for us to expand our listener base. I've been right around the same 25 to 32 listeners for most of the run of this show. It's time to expand that. I need you to tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, tell people you meet in the street, buy a billboard, put out an ad, whatever you need to do. I need you to tell people about nonsense the show so that we can expand the listener base, get people supporting me on patreon.com backslash nonsense the show and help me make this dream a reality. 
In order to uh, facilitate that dream, I'm going to offer you all, the listeners of Nonsense the Show, an opportunity to earn $100 out of my very own pocket. 100 of my very hard-earned, very valuable dollars are going to go to one of you people right after Nonsense the Show, episode number 250. But Captain Nick, how do I win the $100? There's 30 people listening. Here's how you win. <laughs> What you need to do is you need to tell your friends, tell your family, tell everybody you know about Nonsense the Show. You need to have them listen to at least one full episode of my show. And then email me at beardandbones at gmail.com. When they email me, they have to tell me what they enjoyed about the show. This is what I liked about the show today. This segment was cool. Your voice is great. You've got a face for radio. I think you're the coolest person I've ever heard of in my life. Thank you. It's true. I appreciate that. You you have them email me and make sure they include your name. So-and-so referred me to your show. This is what I liked about it. By the time Nonsense 250 rolls around, whoever has referred the most people who have fulfilled that task to me will get $100 either handed to them or sent to them, whichever is most convenient. Your choice I'm here to serve. Um, All right. I'm rambling. I'm drunk. I'm having a good time. I'm exhausted. I need to go get some sleep. This is Nonsense the Show, episode 238. I still don't have a title. I'll figure that out in a minute. There's always a song after the credits. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for submitting ideas, support, and feedback. Leave a review. Tell your friends. Nonsense the Show. Patreon.com. Thanks for joining me. I love you. Bye. That was a pretty successful broadcast. Heads up! Heads up! Heads up! Here's another one. And another one. Why you all in my ear talking a whole bunch of shit that I ain't trying to hear? Get back, motherfucker, you don't know me like that. Get back, motherfucker, you don't know me like that. Playing around, make one false move, I take it down. Get back, motherfucker, you don't know me like that. Get back, motherfucker, you don't know me like that. So, so, so come on, come on, don't get swung on, swung on. It's the knickknack, patty wax, steel riding, Cadillacs, family off the street. Made my homies put the baggies back. Still stacking plaques, still action packed. And dope, I keep it flipping like acrobats. That's why I pack a Mac. That'll crack a back, cause on my waist there's more heat than the shack attack. But I ain't speaking about bowling, bowling, just thinking about brawling till y'all start falling. We all in together now, birds of a feather now. Just bought a plane, so we changing the weather now. So put your brakes on, caps, put your capes on, or knock off your block, get dropped, and have your face flown. Cause I'll prove it, scratch off the music like, hey, little stupid, don't make me lose it. Why you all in my ear talking a whole bunch of shit? That I ain't trying to hear Get back, motherfucker You don't know me like that Get back, motherfucker You don't know me like that Geek, geek, whoop, whoop. I ain't playing around Make one false move I take it down Get back, motherfucker You don't know me like that Get back, motherfucker You don't know me like that I came I came I saw I saw I hit him right dead in the head
the jaw. In the jaw. I came. I came. I saw. I saw. I hit him right dead in the jaw. In the jaw. I came. I came. I saw. I saw. I hit him right dead in the jaw. In the jaw. I came. I came. I saw. I saw. Just magnificent. I was worried it was getting a little dodgy in the mill part, but then that finale. <laughs> wow.